Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm coming to you from the WGBH newsroom high above the Stockyard restaurant with my colleague, Peter Kansas. Peter, hello. Greetings. In this episode, you're going to be hearing a conversation that I had with Wilnelia Rivera. She is the president of Rivera Consulting, and she was Ayanna Presley's chief strategist when Presley unseated Mike Capuano in a hotly contested Democratic primary last year. Presley, of course, is now Congresswoman Presley. But as you may have heard, there is a new edict from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee that seems to be aimed at preventing primary challenges like hers in the future. I wanted to get Rivera's take on that. But first, I wanted to get her thoughts on what has been a very rough stretch for former Vice President Joe Biden, thanks in large part to a piece in New York Magazine's The Cut that was written by Lucy Flores and described an experience she had with Biden when she was running for lieutenant governor of Nevada a few years back. Here's Flores describing that interaction on CNN. Joe Biden was behind me. I'm kind of preparing myself to give these remarks. It's the very last days before the election. And uh, very unexpectedly and out of nowhere, I feel Joe Biden put his hands on my shoulders, get up very close to me from behind, lean in, smell my hair, and then plant a slow kiss on the top of my head. So I asked Rivera for her reaction to the Flores piece and what she thinks it means for Biden's prospective presidential candidacy. I mean, I think what that piece means, it's another indication of activists and and, and those that have been not, not just activists in terms of individuals, but also those that have either run for office or are in office within the Democratic Party, of another indication that Biden may not be the right person at this time. Um, and not just at this time, but more importantly, that his time, his ship may have sailed. And I don't want to qualify the Lucy Flores situation within the larger Me Too um, movement, because I think I have seen some articles that have done that. And I don't think in any way, even when you read her own article, she says that this is not about that, but that the behavior and expectations for for men within the party have changed. Right. And I don't want to go into the details of whether is it appropriate or not appropriate. But I think that as a woman in politics, um, I could understand that there there have been moments where sometimes things happen that you just don't feel comfortable. Right. Um, And I think what she the reason why she came out is that ultimately it's a story that shows how things have been swept underneath the rug within the party for a long time. And unfortunately, um, for, for former Vice President Biden, he has come to represent that and not to represent that symbolically, but he's been in the party for, you know, three, four, five decades. And there's a lot of incidents that have followed him that are more than just the Lucy Flores incident, but that have to do with his role in the criminal justice bill, for instance, and the Anita Hill hearings, for instance, issues that have really become really clear that, about what direction the party is taking. And do we really want to spend the next six months or eight months to having conversations about things that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, or even two weeks ago, when really we want to be showing the country a restart, and that Democrats are in this to, for, to have a, a debate about ideas and what direction the country should take, not just the party. Because if we're trying to show that it's a time for us to reunite the country, and we're starting with like what kind of party we want to be, when we want to have a national conversation, we're going to miss the opportunity to talk to the broad parts of the country. Is it fair to say that Biden's behavior over the years hasn't just been swept under the rug, although there may have been some of that, but also that people have processed it in a fundamentally different way than we do now, right? Like the, the weird, creepy interaction might have been laughed off or ignored a decade ago, whereas now it's not the way people are operating. Absolutely. You know, um, and I think you know, what, what's, what's acceptable in the workplace has changed. Whether you're sitting in, a, in the office in the Democratic Party, 
um, or at a political campaign or if you're sitting at a doctor's office, you know, I think the behavior for both men and women have changed, whether it's around how do we talk about race? How do we behave with each other when we're men and women? How do we treat younger workers in the workforce? How do we treat older workers? I think all these all these norms um, are changing, right? Um, and it's hard to, to say what's that one situation that changed it all. But I do think that you're absolutely right. Folks are processing it, but also there's a degree to which the risks that someone like Lucy would have confronted have changed as well, right? So that that processing is a little easier, right? Because if you feel that you can now say something and not be necessarily reprimanded or that you might lose from it the way that you would have in the past, I think it's a lot easier to do that now than it was a few years ago. You mentioned Anita Hill, I believe, (laughs) a couple minutes back. Mm -hmm. And Biden came out again and talked about how he wished he could have done something as I should note for people who are listening that you're sort of raising your hands like, what the hell is he talking about? That's my phrase, not yours. Wish he could have done something back when she was testifying at the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. He also made a comment about abortion in the past week, I believe, which struck me as sort of odd, saying that his support for pro-life, quote-unquote pro-life legislation, uh, may have been related to his Catholic upbringing or that he may have been a victim of his Catholic upbringing and it wasn't quite clear how much agency he was embracing Um, This has been a kind of a nasty stretch for him. So I'm wondering what you think is going to happen ultimately. If you think that his candidacy would send a bad message for Democrats, given that he has hit bump after bump after bump Mm -hmm. just in the past few days, but also that polls consistently show him attracting a whole lot of support, maybe from name recognition from Democratic primary caucus uh, voters, what do you think is going to happen with Biden? I think ultimately what's hap- what's going to happen with Biden um is that his the the potential of his announcement is already divisive enough within the Democratic Party that I think we all must move on from that at this stage. Um because if we get stuck in the mud of even 2 to 3 weeks or a month worth of part of intra-party fighting about Biden's candidacy or not or whether polls matter <laughs> at this stage in the process, I think we lose a key opportunity to be actually be engaging with a, one of the most diverse candidates um, pools that we've had in the history of the Democratic primaries. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to be engaging on policy ideas um, and what that means for the country as opposed to what kind of party are we going to be. I think that that is part of the discussion. But if that dominates the airwaves, we're going to lose an opportunity to talk to Democratic primary voters. I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. but it sounds to me like you might be saying you think he is going to think about this and- and then ultimately decide he's not going to run. Yes, that is that is what I'm that is what I'm saying. And I also want to add as well. I think another another piece that I think has also been hard for for some to accept is when some of his um, advisors have come out talking about the possibility of Stacey Abrams being a, a vice presidential candidate. You know, I, I understand the strategy behind talking about a vice presidential nominee, but when you haven't announced your candidacy, it feels like you're shopping around even before you before you started one. And B, Stacey Abrams is a candidate in her own right. She hasn't made a decision about what she wants to do, whether she wants to run for president, whether she wants to run for Senate, and she should be given that opportunity as well. And I think that also among some people, amongst people of color and activists that have worked, worked really hard on Stacey's campaign and that are paying attention to her candidacy, whether she runs for Senate or nationally, that also left a bad taste in people's mouth as well. So I think it's a combination of all these factors that it is better for Biden to just, you know, figure out how he's going to support the party in this primary round, because I do think that there's ways that he can contribute to bringing out that vote that is supportive of him. But having him be a potential nominee is not where, where we are at right now. When you mentioned the Stacey Abrams piece, and I'm really glad you did, mm-hmm. 
it's reminding me the extent to which the past few days for Biden have been like something from a crappy old slapstick comedy where someone slips on a banana peel and then, you know, lands on their butt on attack. And exactly. And one bad just goes over and over and over. (laughs) All right. So now, obviously, I got to ask you about this news coming out of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee again within the past couple of days saying essentially and you can describe it in finer grain detail mm-hmm. to me because this is the world that you operate in, that they are going to make life difficult for anyone who decides to work with a campaign like the one you worked with when mm-hmm. you helped Ayanna Presley beat Mike Capuano. First up, were you surprised when they made this announcement? And did you get one of these letters saying you better not work with campaigns like this or else we're going to make life difficult for you? Well, my full answer on this matter is... Um, the DCCC, which, you know, the DCCC, um, same thing, just just reverse for listeners, um, already has a preferred vendor list. They're not necessarily looking for the, the folks that are going to take on a campaign like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's or Ayanna Presley's, right? And it doesn't mean that those of us that are doing that work aren't legitimate consultants or legitimate um, strategists that know how to run these campaigns, but the DCCC isn't looking for us, right? It's unfortunate that the DCCC would go out of its way to make a policy like this because already the DCCC has a choice around what kind of consultants they can they deem to be credible versus those that they don't. I can't remember how you put it on Twitter, but you said something like, you know, for a couple of reasons, this simply doesn't matter, starting with the fact that we're blacklisted already. Right? Exactly. You know, and not blacklisted in the in the formal way, but informally. The truth is, is the DCCC isn't looking for young women and people of color that are running different kinds of campaigns to elect non-traditional candidates, right? They're not looking for candidates to, to, for consultant outfits that are, that are running campaigns from for campaigns that they consider to be more left of center than what the party has been. And let's be honest about that. It sends a really bad message for those freshmen that, that actually won in this way, because I know for a fact that folks like Ayanna Presley care about the party and want to see the party be better, and that it's a process that's going to take moving all of us along. It doesn't mean that we're going to throw people away, but I think to set a, stat, a steadfast rule in this way um, as a committee really doesn't bode well for, in, for intra-party building, which is important for the party to do over the long term, and not just over the long term, but over the course of this two-year cycle, because you know, in addition to the presidential um, primary um, and, the, and the presidential general election that we have in November, we do have House seats that we have to defend in 2020, right? You know, and, and people will forget that. And there's about 31 seats, I, b- I believe, right now that the DCCC is tracking that are seats that we won in 2018, but that Trump won in 2016, right? So there is a clear focus, right, that we need to focus on. But when the DCCC says, no, we're not going to hire or we're going to blacklist those candidates that aren't on this preferred list, what they're really saying is that if you're too left and if you're not centrist enough, you're not going to be part of this infrastructure building in the in the party moving forward. Now, was this decision to formalize what you say has already been uh, just a de facto mm-hmm. reality? Was it uh, Sherry Bustos's decision? Did she make the call? It was her decision. And for those folks that don't know, she is the new chairwoman of the of the DCCC. And I, and I want to say, you know, I worked with the DCCC personally, not not vis-a-vis um, Ayanna Presley's campaign, but as some of the work I've done, I did do um, you know research on other candidates, you know, campaigns in 2018 for for donors here in. Massachusetts. And I worked with DCCC folks. So, and we were partners in looking for what are the other campaigns that are happening across the country that we should be paying attention to, while also working with Ayanna Presley's campaign. We should be able to, it shouldn't be an either or, it should be an and. But now that's going to change, right? I mean, if they go, if, if, by the way, I, I should ask, my sense is this is not totally finalized. Am I right about that? Or... 
My sense is the same, too, because it, it is up in the air, right? And, and obviously, a decision like that can always be changed, honestly. But how much has it yeah, actually been point. put in practice in terms of institutionalization? Not clear. But if it is, you could not do the kind of overlapping work that you were talking about having done pretty recently, right? No, not not in theory. And honestly, that would that would be really unfortunate because the truth is, is that given the, the, the diversity of the country geographically and also this just also what the what it means to be a Democrat in, you know, in Kentucky versus what it means to be a Democrat in Massachusetts, you have to be f- flexible, and you ha- but you have to also be rigid. But when you set up a policy like this, really, what it sends is a clear message to to some to some of us in the in the in the Democratic Party that the way that in which we want to see the party change isn't going to be as accepted. So why would she make the decision to send that message now, at a time when so much of the energy animating Democrats seems to be coming from? freshmen or fresh women lawmakers, like the one that you helped elect. Why Why send this statement? Is it because someone decided, I guess, I'm making it sound like it wasn't Sherry Bustos' call, is it because she decided, no, we got to draw a line in the sand, we got to let people know that this sort of thing that we saw in the last election cycle just isn't cool? Or is there some other reason? I'm just trying to think through why it would make strategic sense to do it. And I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with why make a decision like that now in the process so early. You know, it's April. Enough, not enough fundraising has happened by the committee for for the committee to be up in concerned about their fundraising efforts for 2020. So right now, the main focus of the committee is to raise money to help defend what they expect to be you know, Democrats in 2020. That's the purpose, right? What have they seen? What I, I love to know what information do they have access to that has created so much of, a, of an alarm for them, for them to say, well, if we don't make a stake in a claim for moderate cl- candidates now, then we're not going to be able to raise the money that we need in 2019 to support candidates in 2020. That's the only thing that I would I would be asking for. And there, not enough has happened. And I think interestingly enough. Um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and other freshmen that have seen themselves on the outside <laughs> of this of this decision have actually r- been raising money helping each other um, as this quarter was ending because they re- recognize that they're also going to need to be start protecting themselves starting now and not waiting until 2020. So why aren't we protecting both our moderate gains and our progressive gains? Progressives that won, like Ayana and Alexandria, are, aren't saying don't protect moderates. That's what's problematic with this message, because we're not saying don't protect them. But by making this decision early, you're saying the the progressives aren't as important in this cycle. When, in fact, the progressives are the ones that are energizing the base. But we recognize that to win in in 2020 and to win a national election, we need to have a we need to have moderates be a part of that coalition. So why can't we do both, Adam? (laughs) I can't answer your question. It's a very good one. Let me close with a, a final question. If you imagine a Democratic Party in which, hypothetically, say Joe Biden were to become the presidential nominee, and in which the DCCC had introduced and was sticking to a policy of penalizing people who work with candidates who are challengers who tend to be, again, more diverse Mm -hmm. and uh, further to the left ideologically, how do you think that hypothetical scenario would play out among the voters who the Democrats need to try to unseat Donald Trump in 2020? I think we're, I think, and it's a hypothetical, um, but if I were to look in the horizon, what I would say is that if if we were to move in that direction with that full scenario, I think we would expect to see a lot of people of color and, and what we what we like to call low propensity voters or people that are likely, at least likely to go out to a presidential election, stay home. 
they won't have the same excitement. If they if they happen to have a down ballot race in their community that it's exciting them, then you can leverage that in some way. But we all know that what leverages the most the most motivation is a presidential is a presidential race. And if the those that are considered the largest electorate of the Democratic Party aren't don't feel motivated, I think we're going to find ourselves in a situation similar to 2016, um, where we're going to be very surprised with what the results are. But this time it won't be it won't come to much of a surprise. And I want to say that it's important that this isn't a doomsday scenario. It is just the fact. When you don't motivate that American rising electorate, which is how they're described, we don't lo- we don't win national elections. We just we can't. They're the largest voting bloc in, in the United States, and they are considered un, un, um, the, between the ages of 18 and 29 unmarried um, women and people of color. It's not it's not enough to win with moderates, and having a national moderate strategy isn't going to deliver us a general election. Peter Kansas, do you buy Will Nelia Rivera's idea that Biden's presidential run is over before it even starts? I think she's trying to coax the vice president along, uh, as are many progressive pundits who are appearing on the airwaves. They are hoping Joe, of course, for his own good, doesn't run. By the way, I've got to say, I have never heard uh, Will Nelia before. Incredibly smooth, and I mean smooth in an intellectual way in that she's 100% progressive, but in a way that won't alienate liberals, who were somewhat to the right, if I could say yeah. that, progressives. Look, this thing is a very smooth political hit. You're talking now about the Lucy Flores piece, right? Yes, yes. Flores is a, a former Bernie Sanders supporter. By the way, what makes it so effective is it doesn't appear to be a hit. What do you mean? Well, it's, I believe every word she wrote. I think everyone does. She's very convincing. And uh, politics are hardball. (laughs) I mean, political hits are part of the game. What this really underscores is just how old Joe Biden is. I don't mean chronologically. He's a generation removed, more than a generation removed, from Democratic activists. While many women my age say, well, Joe shouldn't be doing things like this, but I'm not upset by it. I mean, that's a gross oversimplification. Younger women have a very different reaction. And as our listeners know, those people most active in the primary season are very different from the general voter. Look, the general voter, whoever the Democratic nominee, is going to be faced with Donald Trump, who, as we all know, is just beyond the pale so many ways, but especially when it comes with his conduct towards women. Yeah, which makes me think that Democrats should think long and hard about whether they want to tap into the energy that was made manifest at the Women's March, which you've talked about before, which I think is something that might be difficult for them to do in, say, a hypothetical Trump-Biden matchup. Yeah, I I have a hard time going beyond what I've already said because I've never been a big Biden fan. I recognize, I think, his strong points, and I don't dislike him, but I've sort of always been aggressively neutral about Mm. him. I've never been a big fan. Neither have I been a huge critic, but temperamentally, I'm not ready to really delve deep into the issue. This is not good for him. 
I think that's the bottom line. All right. Before we wrap up, what do you think about this DCCC move to uh, put the squeeze on people who dare to work with insurgent challengers? I'm not in favor of economic boycotts of almost any kind. I understand it. I'm not sure it's a smart move. I don't think you can win by way of boycotting talent. Nevertheless, it's representative of something, and I think it's representative of the mainstream party really being afraid of the progressive wing, that it's going too left too fast. The mainstream of the Democratic Party is afraid that they'll lose the White House, and I think there may be something to that. All right, that is going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. Big thanks to Wilnelia Rivera for coming by WGBH to chat. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We'd love to hear from you with any thoughts you might have on this episode or other topics. You can reach us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter is at Kadzis. We got production help this week from Gary Mott and Andrew Masua. Thanks to both of them. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thank you.